Hello and welcome to the Educator's Cape Podcast. My name is Seth Tripp and today is Wednesday, July 11th, 2018. Thank you for joining me. I hope you had a good start to your week. My family and I melted out at Grant's Farm today, but it was a bunch of fun for our boys and us. Day 7 of Whole30 for me and the wife is upon us. We are just struggling with children's stress and not getting to reach for chocolate or have a nightcap or something like that is is kind of hard right now, but we know we're going to be better for it. I'm sorry to treat you all like my therapist, but podcasting is cheaper than a therapist, so here we go again to the red leather couch that is Educator Escape. On Monday's podcast, I talked with homeschool teacher Lisa Campbell, who really puts to rest any of those misconceptions people have to say about homeschooling. It is a truly heartfelt conversation that I hope that you will go check out. Yesterday, the new blog post, Superhero Teacher, which is about the last part of the interview, is available now on EducatorEscape.com. Go check it out. If you have not yet subscribed to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, Spotify, go and do that. I'd really appreciate it. Today on the podcast, 2018 ISTE Making It Happen winner, METC 2017 Outstanding Young Educator, and 2016 PBS Digital Innovator, and Stinger 6th Grade Center Science Teacher Chantal Mason joins me to discuss what bringing a classroom into the 21st century looks like. It includes some fun technology and other tools you can use next school year. Here is my interview with Chantal Mason. Tell me about your journey into where you are now as a teacher. Well, I I went to UMSL and I got my undergrad and about five years later... No, four years. Yeah, something like that. I did Mizzou's online education technology for schools program. And I think that like started getting my brain thinking a little differently. But then what really kind of changed a lot of what I do, and because before, like I always did project kind of things, but, and I always did things a little bit differently and really focused on standards, but not necessarily like the inbox curriculum type things. And that what really changed for me though was the year I had a particular group of students and it was also the year that Mike Brown was killed. Okay. And I had a group of students, five students of color in particular that were males and they were the most incredible people loved to pieces. I had them in second grade that year. And there was something that just hit because being from Riverview, it's nearby Ferguson. It just all of that compiled together. And then having this group of boys that just I adored to begin with. And I couldn't imagine that happening to them. I like that would just have broken my heart. And I wanted to find a way to empower them as much as possible and give them I don't know, reach them because within that year, you know, we had gotten some test scores back and just the huge gap of students of color and white students, just something about all of those elements together. I was like, I can't keep doing the same thing that I've always been doing because it's just not working, obviously. And I can't do the same thing that is happening in education around me because that's not working either. So I spent a summer doing quite a bit of research, and it kind of went along with my master's, too. 
And from that, I kind of picked different elements of PBL for problem-based learning and STEM and combining those together. So doing some STEM challenges along with a problem-based unit that they're doing and really give them the opportunity to decide like how they would present information, where their projects would go, showing them, you know, here's what you need to master, but how can we get there? What can we do that's important to you? When I was researching specifically learning styles of black boys, a lot of different elements came more important in my classroom, just with discourse and hands-on learning. And we did a lot of Socratic seminars woven with some of the different STEM challenges because some of the STEM challenges had different elements of what was happening in the world or things that they were interested in. So that year just kind of transformed everything I did. And by the following year, I man, I was lucky enough to be able to loop up with this class from second to third grade. So I still had my group of boys mm-hmm. seeing the change within them just from that year. Like They were slowly increasing their reading levels and just wonderful things were happening because before several of them were reading below grade level and I was then able to loop up with them again the following year from second to third from third to fourth and in fourth grade was when that group had done this water equity project and seeing the growth from they're reading all of these primary documents and real world accounts of things and putting all these connections together it was amazing to see them and the conversations they were having because they were thinking about the world around them, thinking about their worlds too and what was changing. And one of their projects at at one point was like, how can we get more people to move into Overland, Missouri? And Mm -hmm. they're reading, and this is, well, really this was in like second grade and they're reading some of their primary city planning documents. And these are kiddos that, you know, were labeled as reading below grade level or having, you know, certain reading disabilities. And to see them then in fourth grade carry that work and do these even bigger projects and have these even more powerful conversations, it, like, that was my whole journey just in those three years. Like, without them and without that group, that whole class, I don't think I would be anywhere near the type of educator I am now. It's pretty interesting. Like people, I think, unfortunately, in that in that grade, and in that school district in particular, sort of dismiss the the viability that those students can bring anything to the table. Uh, I think is unfortunately is is a conversation for people outside of education. Oh, but, it's. I mean. Yeah, it definitely awoke, not awoke me, because I always, just with my who my friends were and the circles that I kind of grew up in, like, I was aware of the inequities and things that, like, I could do that some of my friends couldn't, and why, and, it, you know, trying to battle that when you're younger, nobody really wants to listen to you, but within my profession, being able to empower my students was it at least gave me hope for the future with them because they're just some incredibly intelligent kiddos and knew exactly what they wanted 
knew a lot of things more about how the world works than a lot of, you know, adults do and giving them, helping them find some of those tools and their strengths as opposed to what the common mindset tends to be. And just, you know, people have their own implicit bias. It's not, I feel like a lot of times when it comes to race and inequities, the mindset is, you know, that overly strong racism, like during the civil rights movement, where black against white and lynchings and, you know, things like that, throwing bricks through windows, like that kind of racism, but something that isn't always looked at by not just within the education profession, but just all around, is how the systemic racism, implicit bias, all play a more powerful role and not seeing the white privilege that's there and how that kind of gets balled into it. So it's really, it's a challenge that exists. And it's, it's when I started just kind of diving more into that research and listening to other people that don't look like me. And like on Twitter, that was a huge thing for me was finding a group called Educolor and listening to them, not necessarily like throwing in my two cents, but just listening to what people of color and people who don't look at me have to say and figuring out how as an ally, my role fits in. Okay. So is that, cause you grew up in an area that's <clears throat> predominantly African American mm -hmm. is seeing that bias, a little bit of the reason <clears throat> why you wanted to become a teacher is because you wanted to sort of sort of change things. You wanted to make an, an impact in the area that you grew up in. Actually, I became a teacher because I did very poorly in school. And okay. like I was that kid that the teachers probably went home and said something to their parents or their families about. And I struggled kind of all the way through with undiagnosed ADHD and as a girl it's really unnoticed so mm -hmm. high school was difficult college was difficult it was hard getting into my education program because my GPA wasn't great from my gen eds when I went Mizzou for my first year just wasn't a great it wasn't for me a fitting environment so having to pull up the GPA from that and you know, I just, I wanted to be able to help, not just help, because I don't want it to be like white savior kind of thing. I just, I right. wanted to be somebody there who could teach and understand the kids that were like me. And okay. because I had a teacher that did that and she was amazing and helped me through so much. And she's someone that I still talk to regularly, which is outstanding. I mean, she still teaches in Riverview and she's a reading specialist. And so I think it was like her impact on reaching out to me and helping me through things. Like I wanted to be that kind of teacher. Going back to those first three years of, of you, of you teaching and you're creating these, these problems and your kids solving them and stuff. Is that kind of the idea that you, that th during that time, is that sort of where you came up the idea of, the maker space in your classroom or I, uh, was that some other um, inspiration? Like, so it wasn't my first three years teaching. My first three years teaching were a blur. Like that was, I taught first okay. grade 
which, oh my God. And then I taught fourth grade for a few years and then I went down to second grade. So I think it was within, let's see. So the summer that I spent just doing as much research and absorbing everything that I could, I went to my principal and said, um, I don't even remember. No, I didn't even ask her. I just got rid of all the desks in my classroom. And so I guess this was like five, six years ago now. And I asked our wonderful custodian if he could hide them for me somewhere, like just find a way to get rid of them. So I got rid of all the desks in my classroom and did the whole flexible seating thing. And once it was set up, then I brought my principal up and I gave her my research and said, okay, here's what I want to do. And here's why. And it's just like, okay, go for it, Mason. You've got good reason. Let's see how it goes. And that year was great. It kind of diving into really diving into problem-based learning and having different flexible seating options where the kids decided like why they would sit at different areas and tall table, short table or whatever, having more control over where they sat. It was great. And then it was the following year where I was like, okay, I got rid of the desks and that was a win. So I want to do the makerspace thing in my classroom. And I just went and did it. And it really consisted of just a white bookshelf from Target and a bunch of dollar store shoe bins with all the different like arts and crafts kind of stuff you could imagine that were also bought at the dollar store. Um, pop, okay. A lot of popsicle sticks and straws. Okay. A lot. And then I'd gotten a Donors Choose grant for a couple of Makey Makey, a thing of little bits, a thing like six Ozobots, which really the Ozobots were kind of the big win for them. And just, oh, and the Raspberry Pi. Like, that was the first, one of the first years of diving into that. And I just had one Raspberry Pi, and the kids kind of explored with it. It was really easy to just have all of these different things there. And at first, I would give them some, like, a design challenge and embed it within a project. So one design challenge was like the easy ones like build a bridge kind of thing or the spaghetti and marshmallows to make the tallest structure you can really good team building stuff and then as we got more into the problem-based learning they were figuring out how they can improve the water equity issue around the world and so they got into making water filtration devices and for their prototypes they were able to just kind of access whatever was in that makerspace and they could use whatever was there. I mean, we had definitely some ground rules and like what you would use, why you would use it. It needed to have a purpose and keeping in mind how much we have that's available because whatever was replenished was what I bought. So they knew like, I don't have tons of money. I'm a teacher. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think being upfront with them about that fact, like, look, guys, I just thought this would be really good for you. So it's coming out of my budget or my own money. Let's be mindful of what we're using and why we're using it. <laughs> so right. they were really good about like taking note cards. They would make sure they had a reason in their design for 10 of them. Instead of grabbing like 50, they would just grab 10. And which I think taught them a lot with like supply management and like when you have a job and you need to get something done, but you also have different constraints, you know, that the makerspace in the classroom just kind of taught them all of those things. And 
being a science teacher now, it's even more so. But being it, having to say, use this tool and then do this, like that's not reality. But when they could see all of the different options and then they had to decide what would be the best tool for what they need, it gave them one more ownership, but it also gave it more of those critical thinking skills. Like, okay, I'm using the Ozobots, but not just because I think they're cool and fun. Why am I going to use it for this project? For example, one of them they were doing for their, they were, they wanted to learn for the water filtration devices. They wanted to learn how water gets clean. Then they got into the whole, this was when the Dakota Access Pipeline stuff was happening in the news. And so they wanted to also learn about what would hap- could happen to the water. So they needed to learn about the oil pipelines. So they used the Ozobots to represent the oil as it went through in their model. It was all woven together, but long story short, for them to be able to say, hey, I want to use this for this purpose. And like that was exactly what the makerspace was intended for. So then the following year, it was just that much better to have. <laughs> so... You have to go back with me because you said things that I had never heard of before. It's <laughs> I, I've never heard of, and you kind of railed them that. off like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Ozobots, Raspberry Pi. Yeah, and that's really mean because I'm on Whole 30 and I would love to have Raspberry Pi. <laughs> it is right not now. a delicious. Well, I mean, it's fun, but it is not the tasty <laughs> Raspberry Pi. <laughs> well, so the, what what are what are Ozobots and what's a Raspberry Pi and and so, so what it, and how and how do we how do we use the, so ozobots are really tiny like the size of a quarter but um if you stacked like i don't know five quarters on top of each other so they're about that small and they're okay. ma- just little robots that can follow on the basic level a color code like if you put red green black in a line like with marker or something that red green black code would tell it to go faster or like there's all different color codes that make it do something. So you can code a path or a direction. You can also do block coding and then download that code onto the Ozobot. And they've got apps. The Ozobot has apps that you can do this with too. And so then it's like making an automated robot, which is cool kind of for that next level of coding. So it's a really easy way for little guys like my four-year-old well she's six now she was four when we got her one and Mm -hmm. she had been exploring just with the color coding you know if i draw this line for this input the output is the ozobot moves like just starting early on and then it builds what i like is that you can get a broad range of ages coding in a lot of different ways so the ozo those were the ozobots and something real cool that my kids had done with, what was it? Because we were learning about Dakota Access Pipeline and we were doing Missouri history. So part of that was Trail of Tears. So for the Native Americans. So they had to research what the Trail of Tears was, what it looked like and how it felt to be a Native American and during on the Trail of Tears. And they had to use, they had to code an Ozobot to show the trail so they had to make the maps and they were trying to code it and they were having a really hard time coding the Ozobots. They were like, God, if this is hard, I remember some of them, they were like, if this is hard just to code, being a Native American on the trail, like I can't even imagine that because just this part's hard. Mm-hmm. So it helped them get to this deeper level of empathy 
And like it was phenomenal. I was blown away. So like the Ozobot has so many different layers to it that and they're pretty reasonable. You can get two of them for like ninety dollars now. So okay. pretty reasonable little robots. Okay. Raspberry Pi has in the last couple of years become my newest favorite toy. It's a microcomputer, kind of like an Arduino, if you've ever heard of those. But it has its own operating system, and it's like the size of a credit card, and they cost $30, $35. And if you have a monitor, a keyboard, and a mouse, and you hook it all up to this mini computer, the Raspberry Pi, you can do all kinds of things with it. Basic, anything you can do with a computer, you can do on the Raspberry Pi. But you can also do physical computing and digital making, and it lends itself to a lot of different projects, and that's not really limited. I have, I have a master's in technology, the uh, curriculum design, and it would be hard for me to learn all of these <clears throat> skills. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you teach these seemingly, at least to an adult who didn't grow up with all this technology? <laughs> the complex skills it takes to, to, to function well, in your classroom? Well, you know, I I kind of plan out, when I know I'm going to try and introduce something new to them, give them a little playtime, always. Like, here's some Ozobots. Here's how you can work them on a basic level. Play with it. Ten minutes. Okay. okay. It doesn't need a lot of playtime. Ten minutes. Then I explain whatever project that's what's that's within our problem-based learning that they'll be doing. So let's see, what did we do? Or even when I did Scratch, the online block coding, my kids were learning about ecosystems last year, and we're talking about what happens if we introduce a new producer to the creek that's on the campus. And they had to code in Scratch what they thought would happen, making their predictions and showing the patterns of what they thought would appear. So I would give them at the beginning of class, like a really quick five minute how to, um, like, here's how you change backgrounds here. How, here's how you have the sprite move around with the code. And then they would apply that right away to whatever the project was. And then I would give them a couple of links to YouTube videos that were really helpful or just resources where if they ran into something, they had another resource that they could go to besides my five minute, like how to, how often after you do that do you get the – I'm sure you walk around and check how they're doing, but how, how often do you get the 20 hands go up when you – Oh, my gosh. Because I'm explaining like – All the time, which is the best okay. part because okay. they're running into something difficult and they're having to figure out how to problem solve because I'm only one person and there's 20 of them in there. So – and I don't – I'm not – one, to be more like a helicopter to jump in right away. I like to go in, you know, if somebody has a question, and they'll say, how do I do this? Well, what is it you're trying to do? Okay, how do you think it would work? What do you want it to do? Okay, why, you know, what did you do right before that? Like, I don't ever really give them a direct answer, which really drives them crazy. But we talk a lot about, what's her name, Joe Bowler and her research about the brain growing, you know, every time when you learn something and you struggle and you fail and you learn something new, your brain grows and you're getting smarter. So this just becomes a part of our 
daily life and that it's a great thing. It's a celebrated thing. Oh my gosh, you have no idea what you're doing. You're so going to remember in a minute because we're going to go through this really difficult way of me not giving you the answer and me asking you, well, what do you think? How do you think that would go? Why do you think that? I mean, if it's something that's very basic, I might show them really quickly, but for the most part, I say, or I have them, if I know someone else in the class has recently struggled with that, I'll bring that person over in, you know, so-and-so just did that and they figured it out. Now they're an expert. Here you go. So that they're teaching each other. And it's not so much, I'm the expert, it's them. I I don't know all. I wish I did, but I don't. <laughs> right. Because the, the whole line is like, between me and my brother, I know everything. Yes. We know, we know everything. And, and they ask you something, and then, like, that's something my brother knows, you know. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so how do you, uh, so what part of, of them being able to catch on, and some catching on quicker than others, eventually grasping it, how do you, how much do you think that is related to the generation they grew up in? So like, so like, for mean. instance. Yeah. So, so, so instance, I recently installed a dishwasher. I looked up a video on YouTube on how to do it. And, a, and, and me and my wife, we did it. And none of us got electrocuted. Right. Um, I think I got that idea because that's what a lot of my students do. They want to know how to do something. And so they get onto YouTube and they find a how-to video. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So so how much of, of it that these kids have grown up in all this technology that it's easier, not necessarily easy, but easier for them to sort of grasp all this technology that teachers like us mm-hmm. throw at them? I was fortunate growing up that if there was something wrong, my mom would figure out how to fix it. I remember going to the library and her checking out books, which is like, you know, now it's modern day YouTube, but checking out Mm -hmm. books on how to repair a broken bathroom wall and install tile. And I remember us being in the bathroom and her with the drill. And now I had grandpa on the phone asking him for advice and relaying that to my mom. But it was a very fix what you've got. And we didn't have a ton of money. So you couldn't like just hire somebody to fix things. So I was lucky to have that kind of mindset from the beginning. And so for me, thinking of our students with, or just the youth, that they have all this technology, you know, is it easier or is it the mindset for them already of, oh, hey, I'll just go figure it out. I'll look it up on YouTube. I don't know if that's necessarily the generation or if that's just how people have become, like had to be, like maybe in their families, they're a family of makers or fixers. Mm-hmm. There is kind of big difference. And I'll notice like I have one student who last year, his he was really big into cars and his parents and him, they were really heavy into like the hot rod car racing scene. And so he would repair, he had his own little hot rod that he could legally drive and he would be fixing it all the time. So he always had that fixer mentality. And when he came to a problem, his level of resiliency was already a lot higher because he ran into that all the time. And he was attuned to always just like looking things up on YouTube, but and figuring out an answer. But I think it's because that's the world he grew up in. Whereas I had other kids who, they had the same experiences like with technology as far as I have my phone, I can watch videos, I can do this, I can do this. But as far as looking up how to do something and then doing it, they weren't quite as able to. Like that wasn't their natural course. 
So, like, if I would throw the technology at them, I think they were more open to trying it because that's their their generation. But mm-hmm. the the go to I'm gonna look this up and I'm gonna fix it on my own. I still think that's very much about like what you grew up around and your experiences. If that makes okay. sense. No, yeah, that makes sense. I get. I think that's something I did. I don't think I. I I think I knew, but it's never like crystallized in my mind. Can you tell me a time where I'm sure you encountered this because you know you were kind of breaking barriers in that after that summer that you that you when you got all that information you're trying all these new things that not a whole lot of teachers are doing at that time. What's a time that you that you failed and but then and what did you and what did you learn from it? Oh. I think it's hard to pick a time because it okay. happens so often. Yeah. Because I'm okay with failure and right. I'm okay with my students seeing me fail because then they know I'm a real person and mm-hmm. they see me try and figure it out and problem solve, you know, cause there are times when I would have an idea for a really great lesson and it would bomb. I'm thinking of one, I just even, Last year, when we're doing a problem-based thing, and they were, my students were looking at the rock cycle, and it was a simple model, and I was trying to squeeze in some of that scientific method stuff, and just, I had inverted, like, the different variables, so, like, the independent, dependent variables, I had switched, and the lab that I was having them do with it, it just did not mesh. It wasn't even really doing what I wanted it to. So after first period, when I showed them and they went through it, I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. My department had even, like, they have a class Twitter and a class Instagram. So my students that were doing their models, and it was really cool with melting crayons in different states in the rock cycle. So they took pictures of what they were doing and pictures of their work on their lab sheets. So they put it on Twitter and my department had seen it and they're like, oh, that is not, that is not right. Like <laughs> That is really inaccurate. And so I knew after first period, like, that was horrible. It just, it, none of it was making sense. I was having trouble explaining it to the kids. And I was like, okay, this is not what I intended it to be. And this is just so wrong. So I just didn't add that component in for the next three periods and all was good. I cleared things up for the next, the next day with that first period. Like, Hey guys, I was totally wrong. You know, fig- clearing up some loose ends and they were okay. And then my department later on in a meeting, they had said, you know, that was that was really inaccurate. Like that tweet, it was not, the lab wasn't right. I like this. I don't even know what this was trying to be a part of and the variables were wrong. (laughs) And for me, just as somebody who always makes mistakes and is okay with that, I just said, yeah, you're so right. And here's what I did. And I, I think as educators, we don't have conversations like that as often. So it was, it was very different. I think for just, a lot of people to hear somebody say, oh, yeah, I did really bad. Like, that was wrong. That failed. And when I do Raspberry Pi trainings, something with the foundation is we always start with the word fail, right? And we say at the beginning of every training, it's the first attempt in learning. That's what fail stands for. And I just right. go with that every day. 
I fail all the time because it's my first attempt in learning and I want to learn as much as I can in my life. It's, I think, difficult for some people to hear somebody be totally okay with it because then the question becomes, you know, do you know the curriculum? Do you know what it is you're doing? And of course I do. I'm an intelligent person. I'm certified to teach this. I just made a mistake because I'm human. I think, <laughs> I think humility is something that we all should really embrace. It's kind of hard to embrace it because it sort of it admits that we're not the best. We're fallible. Yeah, we're not the best. Right. But I also think that, like you said earlier, that it sort of shows the human side of us to our students, and then we they see that we're not just infallible. We're not perfect. But that means that we're also accessible as a human being. And so that relationship part of teaching is easier to create when you make mistakes and then are willing to admit that you made those mistakes. Yeah, definitely. I think, in my opinion, my students were more apt to come to me with problems because they knew that I made mistakes a lot and it was okay. We all still survived and we just had to figure out a solution. So... And not just school content stuff, like science things that they would make mistakes in. Like my kids would just come to me with problems they're having, things with their friends, things at home or whatever it was. And because it humanized me showing my failures or my mistakes to them that and because I would make it known, like I would tell them, oh, I really did mess up with this. Here's what this is supposed to be. And then I would just laugh it off because it's just something it's not that big of a deal because I would fix, you know, we would fix it. We would figure out the right thing and we'd clear up our thinking. And that's what learning is. I was humanized. I wasn't just the teacher who had all the information and disseminated everything I knew and, you know, told them exactly what they needed to know because especially in science, you know, that's not science. There's, it's all about inquiry and failures Mm -hmm. when you're trying to figure out the right answer and figure out how things work. Wife teaches chemistry. Yeah. Things explode in her face all the time. Right. That's, you know, Beaker. Beaker, he always got, you know, he always is you know, from the Muppets. He yes. was always covered in, covered in ash. Poor Beaker. Poor Beaker. But that's, like you said, that's the, that's that's science. That's, I mean, I hate to use it because it's so cliche, but, you know, Edison, <laughs> the whole Edison thing. Like, I found oh, yeah. ways to, to, to not make a light bulb, but I think it's so true. So for people that are looking to try and possibly fail and try some more and hopefully succeed, what could they do to sort of create that atmosphere in the classroom of the of the makerspace of problem solving technology? Mm-hmm. What's there some like some tips and advice and some ideas that you would First I would say just with any technology that you're jumping into, or really any new thing for the classroom, take one small piece and try it for like two weeks. See how it goes, adjust. And in those first two weeks, be okay with it not working exactly how you expected it to. And know that it probably won't work exactly the way you read about on that blog or from that major education Twitter person who has like 50,000 followers. So that's not necessarily reality, not always. So know that and know that it's okay. It's almost better that way because then you're learning all of the different facets of that technology or of that teaching style or pedagogy. And then try a second part. 
So, for example, at the beginning of my career, my students, I had them doing things with blogging. And I had this grand idea, you know, they'd be able to collaborate with all of these kids around the world and just, oh, it'll be great. And then we jumped into it and it was like way too much. And I hadn't shown them some of the fine tuned things like the purpose of a blog, what a blog is, how to respond to each other. So I had to really pull that down and like, okay, we're just going to look at a blog post here, write a summary. You know how to write a summary blog post. Then after doing that for a couple of months, then it was, okay, we're going to try and find another classroom we can partner with. And then that global world part kind of came in. Okay, we've got that. Hey, then it was, we found this research. Let's add that into our blog post. I Like there's multiple layers to technologies and education and just taking it a step at a time. One, it makes it less overwhelming. And two, it makes you feel more successful because you're doing it in baby steps. Just like, you know, when people go on diets and this idea of like, I'm going to lose 80 pounds. That's not going to happen right away. But if that's your mindset, Mm -hmm. I'm going to lose 80 pounds, then each day is going to seem impossible. So you make smaller goals. And I think that's kind of the same thing just in life in general. But it works really well with technology and new pedagogy and new strategies in the classroom, too. Small steps. And something else I would suggest is Twitter is an invaluable resource. Mm -hmm. You can reach outside of your world. The biggest thing I could say for Twitter is following people that don't look like you. Not just following, like, all of the big name people, but follow people who don't look like you. And they're out there. They're all over the place because... They're the exact opposite. And that's probably where you'll learn the most because you'll hear about some of their struggles, their successes, and figuring out how you can then support that for your own students. Mm -hmm. And you'll also read about and hear about in their tweets just a lot of different things they've done within their classroom. So having different models of people that you may, like your beliefs, your thoughts kind of are in line as far as what you do in the classroom, maybe they're like two years ahead of what you're wanting to do, but you can kind of follow to see their journey because that's really, that's helpful in life. Absolutely. Chantal, I thank you so much for, for coming on and, and, and talking with me. Oh yeah. But, uh, I'm, I, I've learned a lot being, <laughs> I know what a, is it? Is, no, it's not an Uzi. Is that a Ozobot? Oh, no. Not an Uzi. Ozobot, not an Uzi. That's a that's a machine. That would get you in uh, a lot of trouble and, in the school. No. Yeah, no. An Ozobot and a Raspberry Pi is, and just the. Uh, a, I always struggle with if technology doesn't work, what happens? And I being able to just know that failure is okay. I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Chantel, for joining me. I learned a tremendous amount from you. If you're interested in some of the tools Chantel uses or you would like to contact her, her website is cmasontech.weebly.com or you can find her on Twitter at techieteacher. That's T-E-C-H-I-E-T-C-H-E-R. And you can contact her on Twitter. Go check out this week's blog post on educatorscape.com which continues our discussion about why it is okay to be fallible 
as a teacher. If you have not yet subscribed to the podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, or Spotify, go and do that. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and have a great week. I will see you on Friday.